Welcome to the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hosted by John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kettley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 18 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, today we'll be interviewing Eric Garcia, author of the novels Anonymous Rex, Matchstick Men, and The Repossession Mambo. Matchstick Men was adapted into a movie with Nicolas Cage and Sam Rockwell. And Repossession Mambo was adapted uh, by Eric himself into the recent movie Repo Men, starring Jude Law and Forrest Whitaker as two employees for a sinister corporation that gives people artificial organs, but then signs them up to deals they can't possibly afford. And when people fall behind on their payments, the Repo Men come and violently repossess your organs, leaving you to die. Yeah, that's the one thing I thought that wasn't too realistic about the movie, because, you know, corporations would never do anything <laughs> like that. No, it's, it's kind of funny uh, how uh, sort of topical the movie is, even though it was conceived of, as, as we'll hear, you know, years and years and years ago and has been in, in development for, for quite a while. But I guess, you know, when you write about an evil corporation, it's just a timeless theme. <laughs> and then, yeah, and speaking of evil corporations, uh, stick around after the interview when John and I will be reminiscing about violent, satirical science fiction action movies from our sadly misspent youth. <laughs> uh, particularly RoboCop, Total Recall, and The Running Man. All right, let's get Eric on the phone. Hello? Hi, this is Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hey, guys, how are you? Good. Uh, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, so, uh, first of all, uh, just who were some of your favorite authors during your childhood and teenage years? I read an awful lot of weird stuff, and by weird, I wouldn't even necessarily put weird as like sort of sci-fi weird or anything like that, but we took a lot of, of family trips, and we would go to places, so my parents were very great, and they would take me to like, you know, we're going to Spain, and I'd say, oh my gosh, we're going to Spain, you know, I'd be like eight years old or whatever, and, and then what my mother, God bless her, would sort of forget to do is remember that these countries are very large, and that to get from one place to the other necessitated a huge amount of driving. So as a result, I would kind of get thrown in the back with random books, and pretty quickly I'd exhaust whatever kid books I would have read. So, you know, I don't know, whatever I finished at that point, The Hobbit or, or Roald Dahl or that kind of thing. And so then we'd pick up whatever we could find in English in whatever countries we were in. So as a result, it was usually sort of odd bestsellers, but not stuff you would usually... Like, I, re I remember I read Clan of the Cave Bear at a really <laughs> young age, which was a bizarre thing to have read back then. And uh, I think that's actually how I got into... Stephen King, again, at a probably a disturbingly young age, because that's what was available in some random rest stop in the middle of some odd country. So I grew up kind of in this, not reading foreign books, because they were in English, but just what was available. That, and then that got me into other authors. So anyway, as a kid, as a young child, I mean, obviously I was, you know, I, I read a lot of Tolkien and, and Roald Dahl and stuff like that. Um, and Madeline Engel, I, I, actually my daughter is nine, and I've been trying to force her into a Madeline Engel habit. And I uh, finally got her on Roald Dahl, which was good. So to that, and then as I got a little bit older, I started finding that there were certain types of speculative fiction that I was into. So I, I got into a, a pretty heavy Vonnegut phase, which I'm actually still in, I guess. I mean, I've read everything by this point, but I reread as well. And Tom Robbins, I got into Tom Robbins probably around middle school. So it, it, I, I found pretty quickly that I liked stuff that had a slightly skewed view of the world. So I didn't skewed to extremely skewed, but I, I, I never, even though I read a fair amount of it, I never really sunk heavily into um, like space opera and that sort of thing. Uh, so my, my, my sci-fi tendencies 
tended to be more seemingly grounded, but with something, one specific weird thing going on. And then as I got a little bit older, you know, it's in William Gibson and Rudy Rucker and, and, and those types of people. So I, I took a writing class at USC with T.C. Boyle, and he mentioned mm-hmm. that you had been a student of his. I had, and I, I, and I actually should have very much put him on the list. He was actually, it's funny, I, I started reading Tom when I was, I think it was my senior year of high school. And even though I went to USC, I, I originally went to Cornell, and I, and I transferred to USC after my um, junior year, halfway through my junior year, partially because I wanted to come to L.A., partially because I was so freaking cold in upstate New York, being <laughs> a Miami boy and just not used to it. I was like, oh, sure, I'm going to go play in the snow. And then I figured out you had to actually live in the snow, which I just was not built for. <laughs> um, so when I got to SC, I didn't even know that he was a professor at SC. I just didn't, I don't know, it just didn't cross my mind. I was, I was actually coming out thinking, oh, I'll just do the film stuff. And I ended up really going heavily more into, into English and creative writing. Uh, and he was an amazing mentor. Aside from the fact that I'm constantly jealous of his prose even now, and it kind of pisses me off. I didn't like him so much, I'd really hate him. Uh, because, And it seems effortless, and I know it's not. I mean, I know that he, he taught me more than anything else. He taught me about the value of rewriting and rewriting and, and really finding the, the meaning behind what you're trying to do. I, I think he's actually the one who, I don't remember if he's the one who, who taught me the term mental vomit, but the idea that sometimes you just have to get it all out in that first draft, and then you go back and you kind of work on cleaning it up. So yeah, I was always a huge fan. It's actually very nice to know he references me in class. Yeah, no, he's, I mean, he's actually a good example. I mean, you know, especially some of his short stories. You know, you look at the things and you're like, okay, well, you, you assume you're sort of in the world we inhabit, and then somebody goes and does something odd or strange or something sort of gets predicated on this notion that's just a little bit left of center. Uh, and even if you look at the way he kind of handles his historical fiction, you know, he'll look at something from just a viewpoint that is not traditionally standard, which is, which is what I dig and why I like his stuff. Uh, so your first novel was Anonymous Rex. Uh, how did you come to write that, and how did you go about getting it published? Uh, so I, I, I graduated from, from SC and, uh, and had decided to write, uh, which is, you know, hey, I'm just going to write, um, and kind of didn't have a concept of the difficulty of it. So for, you know, a year or two, I, was, I think I was just writing short stories, um, which was great, but not exactly something you can go and build a career around, or it's difficult to. I mean, T.C. Boyle definitely does write short stories, but he also, you know, writes novels and historical fiction. And so I had written this, I'd written like a chapter of this odd thing about dinosaurs in a basement, and I didn't really know where it was going to go. And, and then at one point I was going through, and it just kind of sat around for a while, I was going through old stories and came across this thing and read it. And, and I, uh, I took a shower, and in the shower, the rest of it kind of came. Not literally all the details, but what the story was, what the book was. Uh, and I have since learned to take a lot of showers whenever <laughs> I have that stock. And it's worked for me. Like plot points, I just go, I'm just going to go take a shower. So I've become very clean. <laughs> um, so I went in and I wrote it. And then I had this book, and I did what I guess a lot of novelists, especially first-time novelists do, which is I put it in the drawer. Actually, I put it in a closet, to be specific, and did nothing with it. Showed it to some friends, and they're like, oh, this is fun. You can do something with this. So finally, about a year and a half later, I had another friend who was like, you know, you should just go get an agent. I was like, yeah, I guess I should just go get an agent, not recognizing that this is not the easiest thing to do. I didn't know. So I... um Sent it to a couple of agents. The way I actually found, I made an agent list by finding the, who the agents were of various books that I had really liked. Mm. One of them was Vert. Do you remember Vert? Do you guys know Vert by Jeff Noon? Yeah, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. I love that book, and I was I was always a, a fan of it. Again, I went, you know what? This is a weird enough thing that if if <laughs> somebody got this book published, somebody could get this weird book about dinosaurs dressed <laughs> up as people published. And um, and Jeff's agent at the time was a woman named Barbara, and she had actually represented a couple other books that I really liked, uh, including Permanent Midnight which is nonfiction, but still really well done. And so I'd, I sent her a, a query and a chapter, and she wrote back, and she loved it and wanted to see the rest, and I gave it to her, and da 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 And, you know, a little bit later, 
you know, she signed me, and then we, we just got very lucky. You know, it was one of these things where Random House needed a, a fall title, and the book came along at the right time. And, you know, it's one of those things where they say, what, what is, success is the intersection of luck and skill. So, you know, I had to have the right timing, and then the book had to, theoretically, I hope, deliver. But, I, you know, I don't know what would have happened had I gone out with it earlier and gotten rejected. I don't know if I would have persevered or given it all up. Um, so I'm just glad it worked out the way it did. So for your book tour, you decided to write and perform songs. Could you tell us about that? <laughs> wow, you guys did your research. Um, <laughs> I, I've done that actually any time that I've done signings so yeah, since the first one. Because um, I've been to a bunch of book signings. And look, I, love, I, I like going to book signings where I love the author, and that's cool. A lot of times it's slightly disappointing because authors are not necessary performers. I get that. I totally get that. They're different things. You know, the most exciting ones are ones where you show up and they read and you get to hear it in their voice and you get the meeting behind them and you get to ask questions. I totally dig that. But I went, you know what, a lot of people are just going to be coming in, hoping to maybe hear me read the chapter or whatever. I'll have a little more fun with it because I was always a... I don't know, a bit of a ham. Uh, and I was a musical theater geek. I still am a musical theater geek. And uh, I like singing. I like playing my guitar. I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to do a whole thing. So, yeah, I tend to write songs about the books uh, or the worlds that I've done. And I do a little show. I actually did it for the most recent book. I did it for Repo back uh, a year ago when the first, very first edition got put out before the movie. Um, and I did it a little bit. And then I'm going to do it again when we do sort of this next section of it been delayed a bit but um you know it's always fun to try to think of you know the dinosaur ones for example it's like all right now i gotta think of songs about dinosaurs and come up with things and i try sometimes they're parody songs and sometimes i try to write the songs myself the parody ones work better because the tunes are um good and they can be sung along to by the audience uh so anonymous rex was adapted uh, uh by the sci-fi channel uh, how did that come about the book came out in 99 and um bonnie hammer who was uh, head of sci-fi channel she might have been I think then she was just head of the Sci-Fi Channel. Now I think she was head of all USA networks. Uh, she had read a review of it, and people people was nice enough to review the book kindly. And um, she was like on a plane and read it and contacted my agents. And that began this five-year process, which was I now know now that I've done some work in in TV, really long for TV development, uh, and partially because it was we were just never getting it right. And I'll be the first to say um, that. Even at the end, we didn't get it right. I'm not a huge fan of the adaptation as it came out, and there's a number of reasons for that. But it was really about just kind of trying to – a lot of it was trying to get the logistics right and trying to get this admittedly odd concept to work visually. To me, the whole point of it, to the point of almost everything I write, is comedic. I tend to write everything, and dark comedy is kind of where I live. It's really hard to get across properly and really hard to get through a – major corporation that <laughs> tend, tend to shy away from that sort of thing, as I have learned thrice now. Not always with bad results, it just, it's difficult. So I think at the end of the day, that was kind of the mistake for me on Rex, was because it just, they missed the fact that it was a comedy, and we're sort of taking this notion of dinosaurs dressing up as human beings and hiding amongst us and taking it seriously. Now, the book takes it seriously because the, the, the lead character is in it, but it's the whole point of it is still a comedy, whereas I think when you put it into a third-person point of view and you take it out of the first and you don't allow for sort of this ironic commentary on it, it just becomes this odd sci-fi thing about dinosaurs dressing up as people. And that's sort of, I mean, wasn't that V? That was kind of V, lizard people. We did that already. But it was a process. I mean, it was a, it was a long process that kind of kept going back and forth. And finally, I was actually ready to leave. And then uh, a guy named Mark Stern, who I knew and, and really liked and respected, took over the sci-fi channel and said, um, hey, I, I want to give this one more shot. I said, all right, I trust you. And, um, and it wasn't because of Mark that everything went south. Um, just kind of didn't work in the end. 
Uh, so speaking of the Sci-Fi Channel, they recently changed the spelling of their name to S-Y-F-Y. Uh, everyone I know seems to think this is a horrible idea, and I agree. Uh, but do you have any idea why they did that? The Sci-Fi Channel, they, 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 they're self-hating geeks. They're not, they're, they're, not even, they're not even geeks. Like, I, I think this under me, look, Mark, and I love Mark, Mark is. Mark, I don't even want to say Mark's a self-hating geek. I think Mark's a pretty self-avowed geek. I mean, since I've known him, he's certainly been into the same stuff that I've been into. I think he's gotten it. But even before Mark, they... I mean, I remember we'd have these conversations about how they wanted to branch out beyond sci-fi. That was their big thing. We, we know we, we're doing this thing in sci-fi, but we really want to bring in other people other than just sci-fi people. My feeling, and I've been pretty open about saying this in a number of different interviews at this point, so if sci-fi wants to talk about it, I have to talk about it. And we live in a, in a niche society, in an even greater and greater niche society with every passing day. There are 700 freaking channels on my cable box, and I can go to you know, Gizmodo and io9 and, and, and a million different things, I can listen to a wonderful podcast about <laughs> Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I mean, this is the whole point, is that why are we shying away? In an era where we can specifically reach these populations that you used to go, well, you know, it's a fragmentary population, it's, an, it's a niche issue. Okay, well, fragmentary population and niche issue are millions and millions of people. So my feeling is lean into that. My God, lean into it as hard as you can and make the coolest sci-fi you can, and you will get all of the sci-fi fans rather than alienating 80% of us with this random stuff you choose to show. I don't know. Am I allowed to curse on this podcast, by the way? I feel <laughs> Go like, for it. <laughs> no, I would have said random shit you choose to show. But just, and, and not all of it. Look, obviously, every once in a while, they come out with some amazing shows. Mm. They're like, you know who they are? They're like the kid from the John Hughes movie, who at the end finally realizes he just needs to be who he is, and everybody will be happy. You know, he can be happy with himself. But before then, he's going and putting on blazers and rolling <laughs> the sleeves up. Because it doesn't make any sense. Well, speaking of people who pretend to be something they're not, uh, you also wrote a novel called Matchstick Men. Why did you decide to do a story about con men, and what sort of research into con men did you do? I have these fascinations, I think, as everybody does. And, you know, there are certain triggers that just kind of hit my obsessive button. Con men happen to be one of them. And, you know, I didn't have a ton of firsthand experience. The, the, the one experience that I had was my sophomore year of college. I came home for about a month during my fall semester. And uh, my parents said I was just I was up at Cornell. I was not doing well. It was it was the sun was going away, and I was feeling depressed. I'm like, you know what? I really just need to come home for a bit. And uh, so my parents are like, all right, well, look, if you're home, you have to have a job. All right, fair enough. I have no marketable skills, uh, and at the time, nobody was paying me to put words on paper. So, uh, well, the one thing I could do was <laughs> I'm a pretty good juggler. So there was this cart down in Coconut Grove, which is a sort of touristy area of Miami. And it was a juggling cart called More Balls Than Most. <laughs> and they would pay me to teach people how to juggle them and sell them the balls. And these were like really nice juggling balls. They were like 30 bucks for three of them, uh, which is pretty expensive for juggling balls. And so, but there were these other kiosks. So I had the juggling kiosk. And then there was like, I can't even remember what it was. It was, you know, like a hamster wheel kiosk. I could use the hamster wheel for some reason. Uh, it's in my brain. Uh, and a flower kiosk, whatever the other kiosks were. And two of them were by these guys who were a little bit older than me. At night, we'd close down. We'd probably close down around midnight. And then, you know, we could put the carts away and you kind of go off. Usually you go and you get something to eat and then you go home. Well, these guys kind of had small-time cons down to an art. Um, they're actually the ones who showed me how to run the 20s, which is, I, I put in the Magic Men. They never did anything big. They were not anything like the con men you ever think about or see in movies. They were very, very much small-time hustlers, and I so was not. I was, you know, little college boy who had come home who was finding all this stuff fascinating from an academic sense, yet slightly scared of it. 
and and that was sort of my first experience. Like, you know, these are interesting guys because at the end of the day, they're not the guys you necessarily think about when it comes to, you know, common. You think common, you think Paper Moon, and and, and uh, you know, you think the Grifters and things like that. So I, I kind of wanted to write a story about random guys who are kind of middle class guys who made their living doing these smaller things and occasionally would do a bigger thing and drop back. So that was part of it. And then obviously the, the Roy, the main character in the book, uh, has obsessive compulsive disorder. And I think there's, there's a little bit of me that has a little bit of OCD. There's a little bit of a number of people I know that have OCD. And, um, and part of it was because I, I felt like there is a pattern, there's, there's a way to sort of allow yourself to be that you have to be outside of yourself in order to be a con man, um, in order to be able to sort of see yourself how others see you and adjust. And the difficulties that would present itself should uh, something like OCD spring up. Uh, and I wanted to see how that would play out. A lot of times that's just also what I do is I kind of find certain things interesting and, and, and want to see how they would play out, and the writing process is a way to actually find out how they would play out. So that's kind of how Magic came about. Uh, and then in terms of research, I mean, I, I read obviously a ton of different books when it came down to the cons and things like that, but the only first-hand research I had were, were those guys back in college. Uh, so what did you think of the movie version, and you know, how involved were you with uh, the production of it? Uh, I loved the movie version. I mean, I, I, it was sort of one of those things. You know, it was my first thing because technically that was done, was being done before Rex. Rex was longer in development, but technically that was the first thing that I was really watching come about. So that was exciting to me, partially also because it was Ridley, who's, you know, like a god in my book, and Nick, who I've, I've loved. And, and I, Nick makes interesting choices sometimes. I'm not always a fan of his films. He goes back and forth for me. But when it works, it works. And I love Sam Rockwell. Like, it was sort of across the board. And I, I didn't know Allison at the time, and I, I think she's amazing now. But sort of all these people who I've always respected. And then Bob Zemeckis produced it, and that's actually how I ended up staying involved, which because um, I had sold the book to Warner Brothers very much as a here, go and do you know, I'll, I'm happy to take studio money and, and go away. <laughs> but um, about a year into it, Zemeckis came on board to produce. Um, and actually, the guy who, who originally went in with it was this guy, Sean Bailey, who I since, you know, have, have become friendly with and, and I think has an amazing taste, but I didn't really know him at the time. So first I was just like, who's this guy? You know, it's this kind of young writer-producer. Uh, and Ted Griffin was writing the script 20 from Ocean's Eleven. But then Zemeckis came on, and, and uh, he and, uh, and his partner, a guy named Jack Rapke, kind of called me in, and I met with them and, and obviously was in awe. And they said they had gotten involved because somebody had sent them a script for Bob to direct. And he said, you know, I don't know if I want to direct it, but I'd really love to produce this. And they were like, yeah, great, come on board and produce it. And he said, you know, I'm not sure about this ending because they had changed the ending in the first draft of the script from where my book was. And they said, well, the ending's different in the book. And they went, there's a book? Because, you know, in Hollywood, God forbid, anybody knows that. So they called me up, and I ended up just kind of talking to them a lot. So my involvement in it was very casual. What was great about it was... I had no official responsibilities, yet I was welcome on set at any time. They kind of treated me as unto a god, which was hilarious and super nice. And pretty much I would wander onto set. I would eat craft services, which were excellent. And then I would kind of watch them film, and then I would leave. So there was, it was very low stress, and it was pretty exciting for me. Especially, it happened extremely quickly, way, you know, much faster than I, I now know than movies usually come together. That's the way the, the first Rex book kind of just happened so quickly. My first film thing just happened very quickly. Um, and that was kind of nice to get the first one out of the way so fast, because, you know, the rest of them go slower. I now know. This, this new movie, Repo Men, started life as a short story called The Telltale Pancreas. Um, so where did the idea for that first come from? 
The Telltale Pancreas, were, I mean, this was years and years ago. This was even actually before Rex, the short story. This was during that period, actually, but I was talking about post-college, pre-Rex, when I was kind of just writing short stories and sort of sending them to Analog and Asimov's. Because I used, I used to read them constantly and, and getting rejected from the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. I used to send to that one and get rejected from that one a lot. Uh, my fond rejection memories. So I had written this short story. I, we were down in Miami, which is, as I said, where I was from. I was with my wife. And uh, I just remember seeing this sign on like a, where, on the, this, the, where we used to go to school is 163rd Street, 167th Street down in Miami. It changes from 163rd to 167th. And uh, there are pawn stores there now, a lot of them. And there was one that it, was, it must have been around like Valentine's Day, and it had like a little heart in the window. And I joked to my wife, like, oh, <laughs> you think they buy used hearts? And <laughs> we started talking about that. And, and I went, you know, that's actually kind of a good bit. And I think, you know, obviously I'd been a, a huge Monty Python fan for years and years and years. And, you know, the whole, we've come to your <laughs> and uh, which we reference constantly. We even put that in the movie, but that's a separate issue. So, yeah, so I ended up writing this short story. It's this kind of short, you know, it's like 12, 13 pages, and it's about a guy who's going out and repoing uh, artificial organs. So it just kind of started that way. And then I, it was three years, I was post-rex, it was sort of after the point where I now realized, oh, okay, I have a career as a novelist. Like, I can take some of these weird ideas I have, and, and some of them might expand. And this was one of the ones where I had this weird character. Like I was saying before about how sometimes I just find these characters interesting and I want to see where they go. I had this weird character. I was like, I wonder what the rest of his life is. What does this world look like uh, apart from this short story? Uh, and, I, and I wrote the book, which was the Repossession Mambo, obviously. Now it's become retitled, but that's a separate story. We can get to that if you like. And so I had the, I had the book, and that was 99-2000, probably finished it around 2000. Uh, well, yeah, why don't you talk about the title? Um... So I, I can give you the rest of the, 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 rest of the, uh, the journey, the short version. is. Uh, so I'd shown the book, still called the Repossession Mambo, mind you, to my friend Garrett, who's a TV writer. And uh, I showed it to a number of friends, much like I had done with Rex. And rather than just encourage, she said, you know, this actually could be a really cool movie. Do you want to work on it? And I was like, yeah, let's work on it together. So we ended up writing a draft and um, sending it out and getting a lot of blank stares. But there was a, <laughs> there was a producer named Valerie Dean uh, who was great, who got it and sort of got us and had the same odd sense of humor and championed it. And then we did a bunch of drafts with Valerie, uh, I think eight of them. And then we, she introduced us to Miguel, who became our director on the movie. And that was in... 2004, I think. And then that started a new process of rewrites and did a bunch of drafts with Miguel. And then finally, and there were a bunch of producers that came on and off. And finally, uh, Jude agreed to do the movie uh, just to attach himself. You know, we didn't have it set up or anything, but he'd read the script and really loved the script and loved the part and said he wanted to do it in 2006, I think, uh, summer 2006. And once that, you know, once a star attached himself, it makes it a lot easier to push your way through various other doors. And, and so then, yeah, Uni jumped on board, and then we got Forrest, and, and we were off and running. So the name change itself only happened like six months ago. They'd always been antsy about the name. I mean, it's a weird name, the Reposition Mambo. I, I, I decide something is a weird name as whether or not my mother-in-law can remember it. <laughs> and she could never remember the Reposition Mambo, not even close. So it wasn't surprising to me that they had always been kind of antsy about the name at the studio. And I actually have a buddy of mine who retitles movies and primarily for universal so if a movie comes in and they like the title it's kind of a freelance gig they'll bring him in they'll show him the movie or they'll show him the script and they'll say here's a title and he'll give them like 300 names he's a genius at it and, and he can do it in like a day it's kind of crazy and he'll come up with you know 300 interesting names and and half the time they don't use them and they just stick with the original and half the time they change it so i was actually on set while they were shooting the movie and i got a call from him and they're like 
they gave me their job to retitle your movie. I was like, oh, you're kidding me. I'm like, just keep me in the loop. But nothing came of that. And, you know, at that point, they were like, oh, forget about it. We won't, we're not worrying about it now. And uh, then, yeah, then about six months ago, they're like, look, we really need to think about the title. I'm like, look, guys, do what you have to do. You're the marketing department. It's fine. I like the title. I'm not precious about the name. It's fine. And so there was, you know, there were different options. There was Repo. There was Repo Men. There was The Union, which is the main corporation in the movie. They were thinking about calling it The Union. So, yeah, as it is Repo Men. I mean, it's a little straightforward. It's a little generic for a movie that is inherently quite odd. It's fine. And then, of course, you know, when they re-released the book, when they did the movie tie-in edition, they wanted to change it to match the marketing, which is fair because there's a, a huge amount of marketing for a movie that a book would not usually get. So you want it to have the cover art and you want it to have the same title. So fine. But in the movie, it still says, based on the novel, The Reposition Mamba by Eric Garcia. So it's still there. It exists. It's proof that it existed once upon a time in that original name. Although I think I read that the director actually put the script aside because he didn't like the title initially. Yeah, Miguel, yeah, he told us that like a year later. Yeah, he said uh, he admitted to it. Cause then, and then he actually became a huge champion for the name, which is what was really funny about it. <laughs> but yeah, he didn't read it for, he said, for a while. I mean, like months. You know, and directors get a bunch of different scripts and they have to decide what to read then. And, and he really wasn't reading it because of the title. It's like, oh, it just seems annoying. And, and but it was one of those things that once you, once you read it, once you sort of understood the title and made sense, that said, from a marketing standpoint, that doesn't necessarily help. You don't necessarily just want to go backwards. So did you have to make a lot of changes to the story to adapt it to a screenplay? Or, or how, close is the, how, how close is the finished movie to your novel? It's a good question. You know, the ending is completely different, completely, completely different. And that probably happened uh, maybe a third of the way through the process. Basically, the, you know, the book... The, the, the lead character, A, has no name. And in fact, he actually has no name in the movie either, uh, even though everybody calls him Remy because that's what his name is in the credits, and that's what his name is in the sort of the action of the script. It says, you know, Remy walks across the room, that sort of thing, but he has no, he has no name. Uh, and part of that was because in the, when I was writing the book, A, he's doing it in the first person, so I was like, all right, he's not going to just randomly say his name, but it could have come up in dialogue. But B, I kind of wanted this to be a, the idea of this is this guy could be anybody. So that obviously was one of those things that um, vexed people. So Remy, we'll just call him Remy, even though he doesn't have a name. In the book, for example, has five wives. They're ex-wives. They're not current wives. They're ex-wives. And and part of that is because his whole problem in the book is that he has this inability to see the bigger picture on everything. He's very focused only on, on details. Everything to him is about breaking things down, which is, of course, what his job is as well. And part of it is about him sort of being able to kind of get the sense of humanity and the sense of totality as, as he moves on. And then as we were adapting it for film, you know, one of the things that happened were these wives would kind of go away. So, you know, the first draft he had all full five wives. Uh, and, then, and then Bonnie, who he meets kind of halfway through the movie and, and goes with on from there, so almost six. And then the, but the six went to five, and the five went to four, and the four went to three. And then we were kind of really holding on to, damn it, he's going to have three wives for a long time. And then another wife disappeared. And um, finally, you know, he has one, just one. And with that, there were certain structural things. I mean, the book is written in this very, I mentioned before that I was a big Vonnegut fan, and I was in a definite Vonnegut-heavy phase when I wrote the book as well, um, because it jumps back and forth across time in the way. The idea is that he's hiding out in this abandoned hotel, and he's using this typewriter he found, and the only paper he can find is sort of whatever's around him, because he doesn't want to really leave the hotel that often. So he'll write his life story down on whatever scraps of paper he can find, So whether it's the back of the receipt, uh, or the back of a, or, you know, a, um, just a random piece of typing paper, whatever he happens to find, or a takeout menu. So as a result, the stuff is truncated. He can only get out a couple sentences here. He can get out two paragraphs there. And it, it's kind of linked thematically more than it is chronologically as he tells his story. We tried to do that with the movie, and back and forth it, it went 
between the different drafts is we'd kind of jump back and forth in time in the first draft, and we'd streamline a little bit the next one, and then we'd get back to jumping back and forth in the next one. The final result is much more streamlined. You know, I mean, part of that is the script, and part of that happened in an editing, you know, which is, which is just a different part of the filmmaking process. Uh, so, so Repo Men, to me, felt very similar in tone to a lot of the satirical science fiction action movies that I grew up with, stuff like RoboCop, The Running Man, and Total Recall. Was that intentional? Incredibly intentional, I'm, and I'm really glad you actually brought up all three of those. RoboCop, we reference constantly. Um, <laughs> you know, certainly, if you actually go on the, the Repo Men website, which I think is theunioncares.com, which is the sort of website for the fake corporation that's within the, the movie and the book, although in the book it's called The Credit Union and the movie it's called The Union, you can actually see these ads that were done for the movie and are actually in the movie and kind of in the background. We went back and forth on, on how much to feature them. But they were very much in the RoboCop vein. I mean, that was the idea. We referenced RoboCop a lot as being a fantastic blend of sort of the sci-fi and the action, but really with the dark comedy. Verhoeven's amazing at that, obviously. I mean, between RoboCop uh, and Total Recall and um, Starship Troopers. I mean, Starship Troopers is a funny fucking movie. <laughs> that was too much of a curse? No, I don't care. Anyway, it's a funny <laughs> fucking movie. Um, it has its detractors, but, and it's definitely heavily adapted from the book, but I get what he was trying to do. <laughs> Running Man, the movie, has some great stuff in it and then some stuff that just now, looking back on it, drives me insane, including that score. I can't decide if I love or hate that score. But Richard Dawson in that movie, I mean, you, you, you don't get more inspired casting than that. Uh, he was, I think it was the only movie he'd ever been in. He was completely born to play that role. So things where you're able to take this sort of somewhat bleak dystopian view of the future and find the humor inside of it and say, okay, look, we know the world is not going to look like that, but we're attempting to find a way to extrapolate what we know now into what it's going to be. We're going to present it to you in this way that allows you to laugh at it because otherwise, theoretically, it would just be so horribly bleak. You know, we're not trying to make the road. Uh, we don't want anybody killing themselves when they walk out of the theater. But again, that's yeah, that's exactly where my mind lives. That's the stuff that I adore and the stuff that I want to keep making. So I like that. It's a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so the last 20 minutes or so of Repo Men features some pretty extreme gore and some pretty off-the-wall stuff. Uh, did you have any pressure from the studio to, to tone down the ending or to make it more straightforward? You know, I, I'd say I didn't. Um, you know, I don't know if Miguel, who's our director, I, I don't, you know, he... <laughs> Miguel and I are very close, and so I'd get to hear a lot of the stuff that was going on, but I think he shielded me from some of the, <laughs> the more egregious things that he was kind of dealing with. I would just sort of see him go through this process. You know, if I saw him in a week and he kind of hadn't shaved in a while and he had this thousand-yard stare like he had been in the prison rec yard for a month, I'd be like, oh, he just came out of a studio meeting. Okay, I get it. So, you know, there may have been, but, you know, the last thing is I don't want to give anything away. So, so there's, there are certain elements and twists that obviously happen throughout the film, and there are reasons that the last 20 minutes are the last 20 minutes. It's funny, there was a, a friend of mine sent me a review of the film, and it said something like, the last 20 minutes are some of the most, what did it say? It didn't say, like, morally repugnant, but it said something <laughs> like that. And I was just floored. I went, okay, they just did not get what we were trying to do, and that's either, our, you know, our fault as filmmakers and, and not kind of getting that out, but the whole point to me of the end of the film is, well, I don't want to give anything away, but the whole point to me of the end of the film is allowing your main character to kind of find the person who he really is inside of and find a way past that which he has done. And when you live a life of violence, you kind of have to go through this violent thing to get past it. We, we got a lot of guff from the studio on various points, but I actually, 
I don't think we got a lot of guff from them on the end there, especially because Miguel shot it so well. I think they just saw how, <laughs> I, I guess, insane and over-the-top a lot of it was, but they dug that, which uh, I respect them for. Uh, so given that your writing sort of tends towards the strange, uh, do you get a lot of strange fan mail? I do. I mean, they, everybody's generally quite nice. You know, a lot of it is your basic, hey, I really love the stuff you did, and da-da-da-da-da-da. Um, I have in the past, when, when, when the Rex series was going, you know, because I did three of the Rex books, and the, the Rex fans are great. Um, a couple of them seem to actually believe that I'm onto something <laughs> real. You know, there is that whole sort of the, the people who believe that there are lizard people living underneath the earth, and they actually have these conferences where they talk about them. So I've been invited to a few and declined because <laughs> um, it, it scares me a little bit. Um, <laughs> but you know, but I've but I've also been introduced to you know just other groups and worlds that I wouldn't necessarily. I attended a, a conference, C O N F U R E N C, kind of a furry thing, and I've never been a furry, and it's kind of never been my thing. But I didn't realize that it makes sense because I'm writing about anthropomorphic creatures that uh, I kind of liked in the furry community, and I went to this conference here in Southern California, and it was really fun, and everybody was really nice, um, and, and I, I wasn't frightened at all, which was good. Um, the, the people who really believe in the lizard people frightened me a little bit, but so I get those, but I mean, I also get things, you know, I got to remember, this was years ago, but I got a letter from a guy who was in prison who had read Matchstick Man, and he, he said it was like the first book he'd ever gotten through, and he loved it, and it made him want to learn how to write and better himself in prison. And I was like, that's, that's so not like my, my, you know, it's not my goal is to help the people. <laughs> I just set out to tell a story, but that was, it was such an amazing thing to know that, yeah, I had, I had an effect on people. So that was pretty cool. So, yeah, you know, slightly odd. But again, slightly odd is where I live. So when I meet other slightly odd people, we tend just to become friends. I thought you were going to say that that guy uh, was inspired to become a con man after reading the book. You know, right. like, that's probably you know. what. That's <laughs> probably what he really wanted to write. He's like, no, then he's going to feel all sad. I'll just tell him I want to write books now. I like, right. I thank you for teaching me all these new tricks. Now I'll just go turn to white collar con crime. Um, so, if people enjoy your writing, uh, what other contemporary authors do you think uh, they would enjoy? Chris Moore. I, I, we actually mm. share a fair amount of fans, uh, and I know Chris a little bit, and I, I love his stuff. I, I mentioned Rudy Rucker before. Uh, I mean, Rudy's stuff is really bizarre, but uh, but I love reading it. Just sort of, it hurts my brain, but I think in a in a, <laughs> in, a in the in the way that like you know you go to the gym or somebody goes to the gym. Uh, every once in a while, I'll stumble into the gym, and and that's the problem. I guess if I did it on a regular basis, I, it wouldn't feel so sore the next day. But to go to the gym and the next day, you just kind of feel sore. Same thing. Like I read a Rudy Brucker book, and uh, it hurts my brain, but I think in a good way, in a way that's good for me at the end of the day. I've recently gotten to the, the Old Man's War trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Old Man's War and Last Colony. What was the middle one? I can't remember. The Scalzi. One of, one of my favorite books is, uh, is a book called Geek Love by Catherine Dunn, mm-hmm. um, uh, which I think if people like my stuff, they might, certainly if they like the Rex books, they would like Geek Love. And I am T.C. Boyle, who we've mentioned before. I'm sure I have a bunch now. Had you not put me on the spot? Damn it. <laughs> but, uh, but first I'd say if, if you've just read my stuff and you haven't read Chris Moore, uh, definitely read some Chris stuff. Okay, so uh, are you working on anything right now, and do you have anything coming up that people should keep an eye out for? Um, I have, I'm working on a new book. I'm always working on a new book. Um, it's, a, it's a book. Uh, I, I, <laughs> but books are a weird thing. I don't talk about the books before I finish them. Uh, and I, like, literally, I don't even tell, I don't tell my agents, I don't tell my wife. My wife just knows <laughs> uh, Eric's working on a book. Um, and she's the first person who gets to read it. You know, that's kind of what it always is. She always reads the books first, and then I can release them unto... Uh, the people who need to for business purposes. And then, you know, I mean, I'm doing, uh, I have a number of film and TV things that I'm doing, so I'm doing some book adaptations of other 
books that I have found interesting that have been presented to me. There's a great book, actually. It's, it's talking about sort of seemingly normal, but ah, this book called Strange But True uh, by John Searles that I did a, a film adaptation for that we're in the middle of putting together and very excited about that. There's a big 80s sci-fi movie that I'm doing the rewrite for, and I, I uh, just signed the contracts. Can I talk about it? I, I probably can't talk about it. So I guess I can just say I'm doing a reboot of a really cool 80s sci-fi movie that has a special place in my heart. Okay, well, uh, Eric Garcia, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thanks for having me, guys. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Eric for joining us on the show. Um, but, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, this, this movie Repo Man really did remind me of, as we talked about, of these sort of science fiction, violent, dark comedy, satirical sort of movies that John and I grew up with. And we just thought it would be really fun to, to talk about some of those. And we rewatched a couple of them to look at them with, with new, uh, new eyes. So I, I think the first one we want to talk about is Robocop. Now, we talked about this a little bit back in episode three, um, our episode on killer robots. But I was, I was figuring nobody, probably nobody ever listens to more than one episode of the show, so <laughs> we can just like repeat topics and, and probably no one's going to notice. So, so John and I have just rewatched RoboCop 2, and I, I have to say this is not, not as good as I remember. Yes, I, I will never forgive you for making me rewatch <laughs> RoboCop 2. It was funny, actually, you know, this, this movie is directed by Irvin Kirshner. <laughs> And when I took his class at USC, it, it came up one time in class that he had directed RoboCop 2. And I was like, whoa, you directed RoboCop 2? I love that movie. And he was like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and having just rewatched it, I can understand how you might be a little uh, less, less than wildly enthusiastic about Ashamed, it. <laughs> Ashamed, you might say. Um, speaking of which, uh, Frank Miller wrote the screenplay, of all people. You know, Frank Miller of Sin City fame. That's kind of strange. Uh, I mean, I guess this kind of fits his uh, writing style. And he also wrote the the Dark Knight Returns, right? So I mean, he's like everything he writes is like you know dark and gritty and dystopian, has a dystopian feel to it. But I didn't even know he was writing movies so long ago back then. I mean, I thought he was just a comic book writer for for many years until recently. Yeah, well, I think you know once he really made a big splash in comics, you know, he wanted to conquer Hollywood next, and mm-hmm. he, he actually I think he he worked he worked on RoboCop two and three. And was like so appalled by the end result that he sort of swore off Hollywood for for years afterward. Have you actually ever seen RoboCop three? I'm pretty sure I saw it like when it came out, but uh, that one I also blocked out of my memory. And uh, you're not going to convince me to rewatch that one. <laughs> no, I've, I've never seen it. I uh, I was I was like, well, maybe I should watch it, you know, because I you know because we're going to be talking about RoboCop, and I just rewatched RoboCop two, and I just watched the trailer for RoboCop three, and and they're like. You told me your ninja would take care of RoboCop, <laughs> and like RoboCop's flying and stuff, and I'm just like, no, I don't think I can. I can't bring myself to watch it. Yeah, there's some movies that just shouldn't have sequels, you know. I mean, I guess most movies shouldn't have sequels, but you know, RoboCop had a good, solid story to it. It came to a nice conclusion, you know, and uh, it just he he was not a character that was going to lend itself to an ongoing series. I mean, the whole the whole first movie would have had to been structured completely differently if it was going to sort of make sense for him to be a continuing character. And, and I mean, you know, the thing is like, I mean, how long was this movie? I think it was about eight hours long or so. Right. I mean, that's what it felt like, but um, you know, <laughs> there's only about 15 minutes of like actual decent movie in there. And uh, it's just so hard to watch. I mean, I was, just, I got so bored. I was just like, you know, fiddling around with my computer as I was watching the movie and it's like, Oh, RoboCop, what have you done to us? But I mean, like the only the only like really amusing part is like when they sort of ro- they reprogram RoboCop to have all these like completely crazy um, directives, like you know, 
Smile, I think, is one of them. And, uh, you know, you only sort of see them briefly as they scroll down the screen, but like, they, they make them be nice to everybody and, and, you know, sort of lecture on the environment and stuff like that. And it's like, it's just kind of funny because, like, oh, I can totally believe that kind of thing would happen. You know, even though Robocop is like totally awesome, he cleaned up old Detroit, you know, um, well, we got to go tinker around with him and make him better. I, I did, I, I did really enjoy that part. Um, you know, it's, they sort of have, you know, Robocop's gets like 250 new directives written by committee and it's, it's sort of a big mess. Perhaps maybe this movie uh, functioned the same way. Um, <laughs> well, that's what Frank Miller would have us believe, right? I mean, oh, it was the Hollywood studios that interfered with the movie, and that's why that sucked. Well, apparently he like did a graphic novel series mm-hmm. um, where it was like kind of more of his original concept. So if, if people are curious, I guess you can check out. It's called, it's called Frank Miller's RoboCop. I, I don't know anything about it um, besides that. But I think you're right that RoboCop has a really good character arc in the mm-hmm. first movie, and... A big problem with a sequel was that you can't just have the character run through the same character arc again. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what they try to do here with the same, you know, the sort of like, am I human or am I a robot? And so the last line of this movie, I'm going to like, I'm going to say spoiler, spoiler warning. The, the la- me, it's not, it's not spoiling <laughs> anything. But the last line of the movie, you know, Robocop says, well, Lois, we're only human. <laughs> and uh, it's like, it's completely unearned, you know, like nothing in the movie has happened to, to justify that ending. Um, you know, the, the character arc is just missing huge pieces out of it. I did think, I mean, I did think there was good stuff in this movie. I mean, the, the reason I remember it fondly is because I just kind of remembered the good things and I had completely forgotten all the really silly things. But mm-hmm. I mean, and actually I think a reason that Robocop, the original Robocop works is that it's sort of a good balance of kind of genuine drama with over the top satire mm-hmm. and, and just sort of over the top violence and things. And and this movie, it, it it was just there was no there was no grounding of genuine drama. It was all over the top or silly or it just kind of felt like a cartoon. But this the stuff I I I remember kind of liking. I mean, I, I've always thought the idea of a of a drug addicted killer robot was kind of cool. Hmm. Yeah. Um. And uh, <laughs> wait, I thought there was some other stuff I liked. Let's see. <laughs> uh, well, I can tell you, I can tell you a whole bunch of stuff I didn't like. Um. But. I mean, I haven't watched the original Robocop. I, I watched it a, cu- a couple years ago, but I don't remember his costume looking so fake. Did they have a no, dif- different no, costume it, in this? I think it looked better in, in the original one. I mean, I, like that was actually one of the things I sort of noticed as I was watching is that it seemed like the budget must have been a fraction of what it was for Robocop 1. Actually, uh, I mean, another thing I liked or that I remember liking, that I remember thinking was just really horrifying and dramatic is when they, uh, the scene where the criminals like disassemble Robocop with a jackhammer and just like dump his parts out on the sidewalk yeah. in front of the police station as written i think that that's a great scene but again the prop just looks so ridiculous i mean <laughs> you know the the sort of robocop torso you know you're just watching the movie and you're like wow i'm gonna really go out on a limb here and say that this is a puppet you know <laughs> yeah well and i think the other issue too is like like kane the the villain in the movie he, he's like you know he's another robocop prototype but they put like a serial killer's brain inside of him which like uh, I mean, I, I kind of like that, you know, they take the whole brain and nervous system out of his dead body and they sort of suspend it in this uh, fluid. And so you sort of see it with the eyeballs attached to it and everything. And that was pretty cool and creepy. But um, and I like that they sort of put that whole thing into the robot so you can actually believe that maybe, you know, maybe the, the, the guy Kane actually did survive and is was transplanted into this robot and started controlling it. But I mean, who who would have thought that? putting a master criminal inside of a, a giant killer robot would be a bad idea, right? Um, I also kind of liked the part where they can't reproduce RoboCop because the subjects just keep killing themselves. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, that, yeah, that was pretty cool. Although, actually, speaking of uh, chintzy special effects, like all the other RoboCop prototypes look terrible. I have to say, I do kind of like the design of the RoboCop too. It actually is is still scary. I mean, it really scared me when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it's obviously you know stop action, mm-hmm. um, sort of like Ed Two Hundred Nine is obviously stop action. But I mean, that's something that that both those movies do really well. It's just sort of like just scary robots, and mm-hmm. that was one thing that was really kind of you know. I have I have the same problem when 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 RoboCop busts into a drug lab or something. All these people just stand there shooting at him, even though it's obvious they can't hurt him. Right. And then they just get blown away one after another. And I'm like, Kevin, yeah. hasn't this happened enough that they know to just run away whenever RoboCop <laughs> shows up? Right. And it's the same thing with the RoboCop too. It's so big and so scary. I I just can't imagine why anyone would not run away as soon as that thing busted into a warehouse. Yeah, and the other thing is, too, that RoboCop always walks so slow. It's like, you know, everybody could just totally get away. Why would you stop and try to fight him? It's ridiculous. Um, but getting back to RoboCop 2, like, specifically, um, one of the other things I really hated in that movie is just, like, that stupid kid. There's, like, this There's this kid that's, like, basically the mastermind behind this organization. Like, once this guy Kane gets, you know, put into the robot body, like, this kid is left running the show. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those things where you, you can kind of imagine it sounding like a good idea. Yeah. On, on the page if there was just that and everything else was more serious but mm-hmm. it's just it's like stuff like that piled on top it's sort of like silly thing like that piled on top of silly thing piled on top of silly thing like like when the whole um <laughs> like little league team is attacking the oh. store <laughs> yeah <laughs> and actually i mean i kind of like that too but it's it, there's just too much stuff like that for you to take the movie at all seriously you know yeah. if, it, if there was just like the occasional thing like that right it would work as dark comedy i think but what are we to make of robocop like smashing people's faces into arcade machines to beat confessions out of them i mean that's (laughs) not upholding the law is it doesn't that violate directive three yeah you would think so um hmm that's a fair point you know because uh in robocop one i mean when he's when he threatens uh to uh, violate secret directive four which is like you know that he can't arrest or you know sort of impede anyone who works for ocp you know he he starts shutting down so you were led to believe that if if he violates any of his prime directives that he would shut down maybe he has a uh, sort of lenient guidelines um for enforcing the law um but but speaking of ocp i did actually kind of like the line at the end i mean it was again pretty broad satire but when this uh the robocop 2 is just gunned down like dozens of police officers and reporters and witnesses and stuff and the ceo and his lackey are standing on the balcony and he says the ceo says this might look bad for ocp johnson like, <laughs> get one of our best pr teams on this right away <laughs> right right <laughs> I'm actually speaking of the CEO, like that was one of the other things I thought was kind of really off about this one is because in the first RoboCop, that guy's portrayed as not being evil. But in this movie, he's totally evil. Like, you know, I mean, he just doesn't care about people at all. And in in RoboCop 1, it was Dick Jones who was the bad guy who was running things. And it's like we're left to believe that this old man, they call him the old man in the first one. um, You know, we're left to believe that he's kind of the goodly guy behind the scenes and he just had this bad egg running the show. Um, and that, you know, he really wanted to make this revived, you know, future city of Detroit. And he wanted to clean up the streets with uh, RoboCop and everything. And he even has this, like, epic line at the end of RoboCop where he's like, you know, where he asks RoboCop what his name is. And it gives us, you know, it gives us the last line of the movie. Um, and so we're sort of led to believe that he's like this good guy. But then in, and here we are, RoboCop 2. We have no justification for why he's suddenly completely soulless. You know, it's sort of a tradition on the show that we, we have to mention King's Quest. <laughs> And I can't. How are you going to tie that to dystopian uh, stuff? Well, there actually, there's no way I can do it. But there was a, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there was a series from the same company called Police Quest, 
And I just want to make a note of this because, you know, in terms of like not beating confessions out of suspects and stuff, you know, one thing that really drives me crazy about movies, which feature police officers, is that they almost never follow proper police procedure. Um, I mean, this this really got to me watching that that stupid iRobot movie with Will Smith, where, you know, it's like two thirds of the way through the movie. It's just a total Hollywood formula thing that the detective has to get thrown off the case in order to solve it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so the, the captain is like, Del Spooner, your name is an odd double entendre, <laughs> and you're off the case. And and at that point, I was just like, the next time I watch a movie where this happens, I'm just stopping it right there. I, 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 I'm, I'm totally overdosed on this trope. But what was so nice about Police Quest is that, you know, it, it came with a booklet of actual, you know, real police procedures. Mm-hmm. And, and t- so to play the game, you had to always follow proper police procedures, which exist for a reason. And if you didn't, you know, bad things happened. So it was, it was kind of like a training simulator in proper procedure. Mm-hmm. But then it just kind of ruined movies for you because if you know any police procedure at all, you're, you're just watching the movie and you're like, why aren't they calling for backup? Why are these two people going into this booby-trapped warehouse and not calling mm-hmm. for backup? Oh, it's because they're going to die. Right. But um, I don't know. Apparently RoboCop is being... I can't tell. It's it's either being remade. It's The reports are a little sketchy. Uh? Yeah, it sounded like it was a remake or a reboot, I should say. Um of uh of robocop uh with darren aronofsky attached but i I, it sounded like that that was in jeopardy because of some sort of studio thing i believe that what i had read was that the studio wanted to force aronofsky to make it 3d but he didn't want to do that and uh so he was threatening to walk but um i haven't seen if there was an update on that yeah i I saw a thing that they're like no it's not a reboot it's a sequel Mm -hmm. um so i don't know maybe they're gonna do like a superman returns kind of thing where they kind of pretend some of the sequels just never happened and you know yeah. pick it up after the the good ones uh but yeah it, it sounds like it's really really in flux and i'm not sure yeah. that, that one's gonna happen I, I suspect it would still happen but it might not have darren aronofsky attra- attached to it and i was i was pretty optimistic about that because i'm you know i'm a big fan of pie um you know which uh, was his first movie i mean um and requiem for a dream as well I, I wasn't such a big fan of the fountain but um you know i'm still very curious about him as a director and and, and you know I, I i love me some robocop you know uh, okay, so, so the next movie that we wanted to talk about was Total Recall, and this one also is, is getting remade, it sounds like. Uh, apparently, Columbia Pictures has hired Kurt Wimmer to write a script. Why have I heard of his name before? I recognize it, but I don't know why. Uh, he did, um, in terms of science fiction, he did um, Equilibrium. Oh, okay. And, that was terrible. And um, uh, Ultraviolet. Ultra uh <sighs> I, and I haven't seen either of these, um, but, you know, YouTube is always suggesting that I watch music videos <laughs> that people have made by cutting together the action scenes with their favorite song. Uh-huh. So I've seen the action scenes and the action scenes seem pretty cool, but mm-hmm. the movies have gotten such have been so poorly reviewed that I have never actually gotten around to watching them. Yeah. You know, I, I'd never seen Ultraviolet, but, uh, you know, I'd heard it was so terrible. That's why I never watched it. But Equilibrium was just I, I actually walked out of that in the theater. Well, so what did you think of? What did you think when you just oh. rewatched Total Recall? Yeah, boy, you know, I, that was pretty disappointing, I have to say. Uh, I was a big fan of Total Recall. I mean, uh, you know, Total Recall was the first uh, novelization I ever read, even. Uh, I mean, it was partially because it was written by Piers Anthony, and, and I was a big Piers Anthony fan when I was a kid. But uh, so, you know, I mean, I was I was really disappointed. I mean, it's like it doesn't really hold up as well as I thought it would. Um, there's a lot of ridiculous things in it. And actually, you know, when you had brought it up, uh, I was thinking like, huh, I don't remember it really being all that dystopian. But, you know, it definitely is. I mean, um, certainly the situation on Mars is very dystopian. 
you know, the sort of people who live on Mars and the colonies, they're all living under sort of the, the under the thumb of this uh, corporate dictator who just, you know, he I mean, he charges them for air. I mean, any any movie in which, uh, you know, you're charged for air, that's pretty dystopian. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, there's just a, there's a lot of issues with it. I mean, it, it's still pretty cool. Like, it's got some cool stuff in it, but man, a lot of it didn't hold up. And uh, you know, I was actually kind of surprised. You know, and on one of our shows, we interviewed uh, Tom Rogers, who did uh, insultingly stupid movie physics. And after I watched it, I was like, I got to go look in that and see if like he references Total Recall at all, because like, I mean, it, it's got to be up there, right? I mean, of of the movies that have the worst physics in it. I mean, well, right. There's there's a lot of. Uh... Uh, science stuff in this movie but i i have to say like watching this this was actually better than i remembered really um because i remembered the end really vividly mm-hmm. and actually when i was um uh you know when i when i was researching this this episode i i came across a quote where you know this this movie went through something like 43 rewrites <laughs> and uh, so there was a quote from one of the screenwriters who had worked on it and he says you know i turned in my script and they came back to me and said, oh, you did the Philip K. Dick version. <laughs> um, if, if you don't know, this is really, really loosely based on a Philip K. Dick story called We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. And, and so anyway, so they said, you did the Philip K. Dick version. And he's like, isn't that, isn't that, <laughs> isn't that, wasn't that my job? You know? And they're like, no, we want it to be more like Raiders of the Lost Ark goes to Mars. <laughs> and that perfectly encapsulates everything I hate about this movie. You know, like, <laughs> like all the Philip K. Dick stuff. I really like, mm-hmm. and all the Raiders of the Lost Ark goes to Mars. Mm-hmm. I, I don't particularly like, right? But I mean, the Philip K. Dick kind of stuff in this movie, I think, is really good. I mean, you know, the the first third of the movie, you know, just the idea of you know implanting memories and not being sure what's going on and not being sure who you are, and and there's this scene in the movie that I, I think is absolutely brilliant, which is the scene where the it's about I don't know, it's about halfway through the movie where the guy from Recall shows up at mm-hmm. his hotel room and tells him that. This is all a dream and that he has to swallow the red pill or, or else, you know, he's going to just, you know, be lobotomized. And mm-hmm. you agree with me, right? That's a good scene. Oh, yeah. No, that's a great scene. Um, although I, I do sort of question uh, Quaid's logic. Uh, Quaid is the protagonist in the movie. Arnold Schwarzenegger plays him. Um, I do question his logic that he he like decides that the guy is lying because he sees a bead of sweat go down his face and then he, and then he shoots him. And so I was like, well... Sure, maybe he was lying, but maybe he's just like a good doctor and he was like really nervous that you weren't going to believe him and you were going to not take the pill and he and he really wanted to save you and you know maybe that's why he was sweating because he was trying to help you. But, you know, it turned out he was right, so it was okay. Well, no, but did it turn out he was right? I mean, well, yeah, right. I mean, I don't know. I I I don't think that the movie really pulls it off if um if, if you're expecting it to turn out that that it could go either way that either it really was a sort of memory issue like the doctor or, I mean, it was really a brain issue, as the doctor was implying, or if it, if it really happened, uh, as we see in the movie. Let's just spell out, there are three possibilities, mm-hmm. right, for what's going on, right? Either he really is a secret agent, and basically everything we see is really happening, or he's just a normal guy, and he's getting exactly what he paid for, this crazy recall adventure with twists mm-hmm. and turns and surprises and things. Or the third possibility is... He's getting his recall adventure, but it's all gone horribly wrong, uh, as the doctor had spelled out. Right. So wait, so you think you think it's not ambiguous what's going on? I don't think that it—I think that maybe it's trying to make it seem ambiguous, but I don't think it really works. Like, I think the only thing that actually works in the movie is if, you know, if he actually is the secret agent thing, you know, and that 
um, him going to like they you know they didn't expect him to go to recall and whatever and that like screwed everything up like I don't know I mean I wanted it to make more sense that it could have that you could have interpreted interpreted it either way but I don't really think it works. Okay, well I think it's interesting because I don't think it works really anyway. Mm-hmm. But I think that the dream went wrong makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but here are my arguments for why he can't really be a secret agent. Okay, uh, the recall people accurately predict what's going to happen to him. Right. Mm-hmm. When he first goes to recall, they say, you know, you save the planet, you get the girl, and the face of Molina, exactly mm-hmm. what she looks like, is on a screen. Right. Now, the only way that that can possibly be explained is if maybe somehow the machine pulls it out of his subconscious or something. Mm-hmm. But if he just chooses some multiple choice options and that exact face pops up on the computer, it right. can't actually all be really happening. Well, because the thing is, like, he, cause he actually does dream about her at the beginning of the movie, too, though, so... You're led to believe that if if he was the secret agent, you know, he obviously had met her before and he was sort of remembering her from this this previous life that they suppressed when they turned him into Quaid. Like, that's why he would have described her as exactly that sort of person that they... But they all, all they ask him is hair color, body type, and personality. Right, right, that's true. So how yeah. does it end up with her exact face? Hmm. Right, unless somehow the computer is pulling it out of the subconscious. Right, but right, if, right. if it is, why are they asking a multiple choice question? So, I mean, I think that's a big... Okay, yeah, that's a problem for that interpretation. Right. But then they say, uh, one of the technicians, when he's plugging his, you know, experience in, he says, oh, Blue Sky on Mars, that's a new one. Hmm. And and also when the tech, when the um sort of recall representative later comes to him in the hotel room, he says, you know, you'll imagine alien civilizations and, you know, you'll save the world. And so it, it's just a huge, huge coincidence if right. all the things that they are telling him is gonna, are going to happen really do mm-hmm. happen. And... You know, we've talked about all the science problems with the end of the movie, right? There are just huge, huge science problems. But that's actually another thing that argues mm. in favor of it being. Okay. Right? Because yeah. you can actually, exp- I mean, I don't think that the writers actually were thinking this, but it would make sense that, you know, anything that happens after he goes to recall the first time mm-hmm. can be as stupid as a Hollywood movie because hmm. it only has to rise to the standard of whatever the recall people right. had written for him. Mm-hmm. So the goofier it gets toward the end, the more that argues for it being just all part of the recall experience. Okay, well, that's a good point. Uh, I, well, if they are remaking it, I hope they uh, they, they can fix it so that, um, you know, we can sort of have more faith in, in interpreting one of these options as possibly being what they were actually going for instead of just sort of grasping at straws as to what uh, actually happens in the movie. Yeah, I mean, because definitely the way it should work is that it should be ambiguous, right? Yeah, you should right. be able to, every way should work, and you just don't know which of them actually happened. Right. I think you're right that none of them really work. No, well, so, like, for, for possibility two, right, that mm-hmm. this is all part of the experience that he paid for. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that he dreams of Molina before he ever goes to recall. Right. Uh, that argues against, you know. This is being his recall experience, right. Right. Um, and, you know, like, at the beginning when he talks about, you know, when he talks to his wife about how he wants to go to Mars, she kind of gives, like, a sinister look as he's walking mm-hmm. out the door. And his coworker, when he talks about going to recall, kind of gives him a sinister look. Mm-hmm. And so why are these people looking at him in a sinister way before he ever goes to recall? Right. Unless it's all really happening. Right. right. Unless he really right. is a secret agent. Right. That, I think that's that was my evidence for that. He was really a secret agent is because before he even goes to recall, we see all this stuff that implies that something is off. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think you're right, though, because they do show this stuff. It's like we're left without the possibility of there really being an ambiguous ending that we should have. And then another thing, I mean, you could maybe argue this too if you got really subtle but we see all kinds of things that aren't part of his point of view 
Mm -hmm. right we see like the villains having conversations among themselves when he's nowhere around and he has no idea that these conversations are going on Mm -hmm. and so so why is this i mean you can sort of say maybe that the recall machine is this big simulation and so we're just being shown other parts of the simulation or something but it still just seems really weird that so much stuff happens not from his point of view if this is all a dream that he's having Mm mm-hmm so, I mean, I think if they re- if they were to remake it, they should really seriously consider having everything all just from his point of view, only show things that he's directly experiencing. Right. Yeah, because I'm, I'm not sure that anything that they show that he's not experiencing is even important anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like even like like would the movie be any different if we didn't see those sinister look from Sharon Stone or the sinister look from his buddy at the plant or, you know, see Copenhagen talking to Richter in his office or whatever? Like, you know, who cares? Yeah, Cohagen. Cohagen. <laughs> Let's not let's not bring the fine city of Copenhagen into this. <laughs> oh, but but then and also sort of on the same thing, right? He goes to recall and they erase his memory, and he mm-hmm. wakes up in the cab. Right. So why is the machine simulating all this stuff that he's not going to remember anyway? Mm-hmm. Right? Isn't that kind of strange? I mean, shouldn't he just? I mean, it, w- it seems like it would work to me a lot better if he went to recall. They gave him the pitch. He said, "I'll think about it." He went home, and the next thing he knows, he wakes up in the cab. Yeah. Yeah. And then another th- reason why this scenario doesn't really work is that he actually does end up killing his wife mm-hmm. in this simulation, if, if, if that's what it is. So, it, it, you know, how is he going to go on this two-week vacation, like action-adventure vacation, in which he kills his wife? Right. And then when and he comes come home, back, yeah. isn't <laughs> his wife going to be alive still? Right. And isn't that going to make it kind of hard to, <laughs> you know, just... So, I mean, and, and I mean, the way Recall is depicted, they don't seem to have the highest ethical standards anyway, but mm-hmm. even that seems kind of strange for, for them to do. It, it, but if if we assume that the stuff is really happening, there's 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 still stuff that, that bugs me, uh, and and the biggest thing that bugs me is the whole setup is that Cohagen couldn't get a mole past the psychic mutants, mm-hmm. so he had to create a mole who doesn't know he's a mole, and that mole is <laughs> uh, Quaid and or Hauser. But then somehow, you know, so Quaid gets past the psychics who can detect any mole. And somehow, it's not at all clear to me how, leads Cohagen to the leader of the rebels, Kwato. But then there's this cab driver tagging along with them. <laughs> right. Who turns out to be a mole. So how did he get past the psychic mutants? Right. And if he could get past the psychic mutants, why did this whole plot need to happen? Well, see, that's another thing in favor of the, you know, it's all part of the experience. Uh... <laughs> You know, because it, it's like it doesn't make sense uh, in any if you analyze it. So it's like it's just some stupid thing that recall programmed for him. But mm-hmm. as we said, that's not really viable overall. Yeah, no, I, I didn't think about that, but that's a good point. And I have maybe I might be beating a dead horse. I have like 50 other things <laughs> on, along those lines, but maybe I'll just mention one or two. Let's see. So we're led to a belief that Hauser romanced Melina mm-hmm. before getting his personality changed. But then, wouldn't she, if 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 like Cohagen's best friend shows up and is trying to romance you, wouldn't the first thing you do is introduce him to one of your psychic friends and see what's going on? Right. Right. And because presumably he had to tell her something like, "Oh, I'm not really working with Cohagen. I'm, you know, I'm, I turned against him." Yada yada. Uh, like, I mean, I think that's what she believes. So yeah, right. Why why wouldn't she have a psychic uh, verify that? And then, <laughs> you know, the whole thing is they want to set up. They want Quaid to get to Quato, but then all sorts of stuff happens. 
to prevent that, right? First of all, Benny the cab driver, who's a mole working for Cohagen, tries to convince him not to go see Molina. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And then, uh, wait, what was what was the other one? Oh, and then like the guy from Recall shows up and tries to convince him to take this red pill. And what's going to happen if he takes the pill? He's going to be knocked out, and Cohagen is going to have recaptured him, right? But Cohagen doesn't want to recapture him. He wants him to be captured. He wants him to be taken to Quato. Mm-hmm. And then also, what what convinces Molina to trust Quaid? Eventually, is she says, "If Cohagen wants you dead, you must be okay." But Cohagen doesn't want him dead because he had him, and instead of killing him, he wiped his memory and made him Quaid. And why does she think he did that? Right. So. Yeah, I have a bunch more things along those lines. Yeah, uh, well, see, the problem is that, you know, we're we're trying to figure out this movie because it has all this sort of, uh, you know, mindfuck stuff in it. Um, but, you know, you're talking about a, just a poorly written Hollywood movie, I think, is the problem, is that, you know, they're trying to deal with something sophisticated. It's just that they bungled it in all these different opportunities, probably because 43 different people wrote it, you know? But, I mean, it's the, uh, like since since they're rewriting it anyway— I kind of hope that, you know, they're thinking about this kind of stuff because there is, an ama- I think, an amazing movie in this material mm-hmm. if they were to actually take all this kind of stuff into consideration and make it all make sense, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if they were to actually make a movie that's this complicated, you know, and gives you, has this much stuff to think about, where it actually does all make sense, that would be really, I would really like to see a movie like that. Unfortunately, I don't know that, that that's going to happen, so... Yeah, you know, you know, it's funny because I think that maybe when we were kids and we saw the movie, we just sort of saw the possibilities of it and we saw all this cool stuff that was happening and maybe that's like what we're really latched on to. And, of course, there's a lot of good action and whatnot as well. Um, and a three-breasted woman. Holy crap. <laughs> but um, – and, and just as we get older, we, you know, we got, obviously get more critical and we start to think about – we start to think through these things. Um, I don't know why the screenwriters never grew up and <laughs> thought through these things and, you know, but <laughs> it would be nice if they did. Mm-hmm. Although actually, I mean, I'm with with my like adult fiction analyzing capabilities. I actually have way more capacity to justify things than I used to. Mm. Um, even things that I don't think the screenwriters ever even thought about justifying. But like when I watched it as, watched it as a kid, I thought all the stuff with the Mar- with the Martians was so stupid. It didn't make any sense. Like, why would the Martians make a machine to give the planet an atmosphere? Like, how mm-hmm. are they breathing? And why would they breathe? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, watching it now, I mean. They don't actually, I don't think they ever say that they're actually native to the planet. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of maybe say that, okay, well, they're aliens who just came to Mars and they set up a machine to give it an Earth-like atmosphere because they could see that maybe, you know, beings from Earth would one day want to come to Earth, would one day want to come to Mars and have a breathable atmosphere. And so they set it up for us. And then that stuff kind of makes sense. Uh, I've never understood why they would build this gigantic machine and all you had to do was press a button to turn it on, and they just mm-hmm. never pressed that button. Uh, I sort of imagined that they were like having a celebration ceremony, and they had like some bad champagne or something, and it killed them all, like right before they were going to press the button. <laughs> but uh, actually, you know what? You know what's funny too about that final scene, like when they're sort of fighting over, um, you know, whether or not Quaid is going to activate the thing, and Cohagen's trying to stop him. Cohagen actually is sort of portrayed there as having some good intent, whereas previously in the movie he'd been nothing but this, like, you know, ruthless corporate dictator person, um, you know, because, like, he, he seems like he's honestly, genuinely concerned that, no, it's going to it's gonna kill us all. You can't turn it on. It's going to, you know, melt all the whatever the hell element was that he said on the planet. And, you know, he seems honestly concerned that it's a bad thing. It's going to ruin Mars. You know, we're not going to be able to live here if you do it. So... 
um, it's kind of interesting that they wait till then to even show any hint of humanity in the guy um, right before they toss him out into the Martian <laughs> surface and let his head explode like a grape. Which, yeah. by the way, I'm not sure, would that actually happen on Mars? I mean... Well, you know, I think that's one of the many science problems. In the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, there's this really funny line when they're talking about this movie where they say that apparently exposure to the Martian environment causes your eyeballs to grow to the size of tangerines, uh, a condition which apparently can be maintained for several minutes without any long-term harm. <laughs> but yeah, but that's what really sticks in my memory is like the stupid stuff with the their eyeballs bugging out. Yeah. And, and that's why I well, that's why the movie ended up being better than I remembered because that, that stuff was so much in my, in my memory. Mm-hmm. Oh, so okay. So we're going to move on to the Running Man, and actually, one of the things I was going to say is that we uh, of this of these three dystopian movies we're talking about, we're going to move from probably the best one and one that's almost completely devoid of bad one-liners to Total <laughs> Recall, which is has its fair number of bad one-liners and it, it, you know doesn't really come together very well. But then we move on to, to the Running Man, which by far has the most worst terrible one-liners in it. But it's actually a really good movie, or at least I think so. I mean, um, it's. Uh, it's always been one of my favorites. I mean, I just I just love the concept of uh, I mean, it really seems so believable to me. And uh, especially now, like when we have all these different reality shows on the air and whatnot, um, the idea that in a sort of totalitarian uh, regime that a reality show would exist where you're actually, you know, pitting criminals, you know, against this game, um, you know, where they have to fight for their lives and, you know, the and the and the people love it. You know, and I, I totally, I totally believe that. I mean, it, it makes sense to me. It's like it kind of, and it, and it works. And you know, like as uh, as as Eric said, like I mean, how inspired is that casting of Richard Dawson as as Damon Killian? I mean, it's like you know, you know him from Family Feud, and he's this uh, genial uh, game show host, and then he appears in The Running Man. He, he's like this evil evil villain um, who who happens to run the most powerful uh, television network in the world. Well, let's see. I mean, this uh, this movie is is based on a Stephen King story. Right. You know, or a sort of novella, I think, called The Running Man. Uh, well, yeah, no, I mean, it's it's a really engaging and fast read. And uh, I mean, it's actually it's published as a novel. I don't know if it's short enough to be considered a novella, but I mean, it's a short novel. Um, you know, He wrote it as Richard Bachman uh, back when he was using that pseudonym. But it, it, it's interesting, some of the changes they make in the story, like, you know, in, in the novel, Richards is, uh, you know, he's not a big muscular guy like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's just a regular guy. And he actually goes and he volunteers for The Running Man because... Um, his wife is at home with a like a sick baby and they can't afford medicine um, and so he's just like he has no other choice but he has to go try and compete on the running man and so like as opposed to the movie where you know you have Arnold Schwarzenegger playing the the hero and he's a sort of an exiled uh, or a you know he's a, a disgraced military officer because he re he nobly refused to fire on innocent civilians although that actually kind of leads to the opening of the movie which I always was a big fan of where you know they start off in this prison and uh, they're all wearing these like uh, explosive collars that will detonate if you run past uh, this certain point. And uh, so this is a really intense uh, like battle where the prisoners revolt and they, you have to shoot all the guards and they have to disarm the, the security deadline system. And, uh, um, and you know, this one guy gets uh, overexcited and he runs before the deadline's down and his head explodes. That, that's and, a great, that's a great scene. I just love that the concept of that show and, and the way they sort of, uh, you know, parcel out all the different game zones and, uh, you know the the different stalkers or you know they're they're great characters. I mean they're they're all terrible actors, but 
and they have all those terrible one-liners like you know they kill the um they kill the guy sub-zero who who's like you know dressed up in a hockey you know in a hockey uniform and he's got a uh he's got a stick with a like a razor blade on the edge of it and uh and so they when they finally kill him it's like they by wrapping like some barbed wire around his neck and they pull it and like you know tear his throat out and and so arnold says uh, after they're done it's like man that's sub-zero what a pain in the neck like, <laughs> not even a good one-liner terrible it doesn't make any sense it's so stupid there's other one-liners like that like when they there's this guy buzzsaw who has like this giant chainsaw and he, and he rides around on a motorcycle and so like you know arnold like you know kills him by sort of turning the chainsaw on him and he like pulls it up uh between the guy's legs and so like you know you sort of chainsaw to the crotch and uh so you know one of the other guys says oh what happened to buzzsaw and he says oh he had the split <laughs> what what who thought that was a good idea come on you know because i mean it's like it's 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 just like a good satire um sort of action movie satire if you take out all those dumb one-liners it makes it so much smarter i don't understand why they're there but uh i mean the final and then the final um sort of showdown between uh richards and um and and killian the game show host is pretty good too like um uh, oh, uh, I, I always love when, like, when he first walks out onto the sort of the the, the stage where the show is hosted from, and uh, and it's got this music, you know, sort of pounding in the background, and it's been intense all this time where they're storming the compound, and and he walks out onto the stage and he just says, "It's showtime," and and it's like, I mean, it's kind of a one-liner too, but like, I always really like that one. It really uh, sort of kicks off the the sort of denouement of the movie, if you can describe a action movie as having a denouement. You know, it sounds sort of sophisticated when you put it that way. <laughs> Well, and actually, there's one final uh, really terrible one-liner. Like after he he sort of he takes Killian and he throws him in the in the little uh, the cart that sends him into the game zone, and then he crashes into the uh, what's it called the Cadre Cola sign, and he's like, "Man, that hit the spot." <laughs> really? Well, like just uh, in terms of like the the movie having a denouement and everything. One thing that you know I watched the, I rewatched this movie maybe a year or so ago, but one thing that kind of struck me is how competently plotted it is you mm-hmm. know because i had just watched um transformers 2 you know which has like no structure to it whatsoever it's mm-hmm. you know it, it, and i would have never thought that i would like look fondly back on the competent plotting of the running man you know <laughs> as like a high water mark for a certain kind of movie but it just did really emphasize to me just how far blockbusters have fallen mm-hmm. in terms of like transformers 2 just being get, able to get away with just not, nothing at all and but you know, like when they, um, when you know, when, when Killian, you know, Ben Richards, the the hero, the Arnold Schwarzenegger character, doesn't want to compete, he doesn't want to sign the contract to be on TV, and Killian says, "Well, if you don't do it, we'll make your weaker friends go," and that's how he kind of like blackmails him into doing it. Mm-hmm. But then he puts them in anyway. Yeah and, yeah. and these sort of like you know like compl- complications, these sort of you know ratcheting up of the tension and making you really hate the characters and making the char- you know the good characters make tough decisions and stuff. Just, just sort of basic nuts and bolts writing is mm-hmm. just like that is just missing from so many movies, you know, so many action movies that, that have come out recently. But uh, oh, and I was just gonna say when you mentioned um, his buddies, that just reminded me of uh, the scene when uh, when the guy Fireball is uh, sort of stalking around in the sort of subterranean area, and and he finds uh, Amber, the woman um, who turned in Richards. Uh, he finds Amber uh, sort of in this locker area, and she's like looking at these uh, these corpses that are there, and she's like Whitman price and he walks up and says hadad and uh and and you know they famously have been uh or they've been mentioned throughout the movie as last season's winners and so you know she she looks at the tags and she's like last season winners and he says no 
Last season, <laughs> losers. Okay, but why why are they keeping the bodies like in a storage closet? <laughs> okay, well that doesn't make any sense. But um I mean I, I don't know, I guess uh it's like in the game zone or whatever, so I guess they just they leave them wherever they fall. I don't know. Uh it doesn't seem very sanitary. Um but you know, like at the end too when um when it turns out that well wait, so wait, Jesse Ventura, he doesn't he refuses to fight. Yeah. Well, so, they want him, they want him to wear like some stupid rig. So uh, so they have to mock up this computer-generated fight, you know, to make it look like Arnold Schwarzenegger is, has gone down. And that was actually before there were computer graphics. So that was kind of a cool, like, glimpse into the future where you're like, wow, that's so cool. I can't wait till I live in the future when you can, like, do computer graphics like that. Right, right. Yeah, so that was, uh, that was pretty prescient of them. But, you know, the, um, the movie, because I watched the movie and then I went back and read the Stephen King Mm-hmm. story which is you know you mentioned it's different in terms of it's just an ordinary guy mm-hmm. but it's also it's not in like an enclosed arena it's more like a hunting a fugitive thing where the mm-hmm. guy's out in society and so he's just it's more trying to hide it's more about right. like hiding than than fighting and so uh i've always you know much as i like the running man that we we have i always have kind of wanted to see the stephen king story because mm-hmm. it would be a, like a completely it would be basically a completely different movie and actually you know there there was a, a robert sheckley story uh, called the prize of peril that had a very similar concept that, that came out before the the stephen king story and a lot of people have actually pointed to that as as maybe being the first kind of fictional depiction of reality tv um i don't know if it was actually the first or not but it was certainly among the first you know that you could actually be reading science fiction decades ago and be actually seeing you know an, again like the computer graphics like an actual prediction of society to come although we aren't killing anyone yet <laughs> um but I just, I guess, just the last thing I wanted to mention is on the RoboCop um, Wikipedia page, somebody put a link to this uh, philosophical essay called RoboCop, The Crisis of Subjectivity. Well, let me just read. This was the passage I was going to okay. re- read. Where subjectivities are increasingly in peril, technified within conditions of cybernetic control, narcotized by consumerist pathology, pathologically destabilized within the material and psychic economy of incessant innovation with nihilism as its byproduct, a renewed search for radical subjectivity becomes a necessary precondition for an emancipatory politics. Thus, as George Grant saw, any movement that seeks to transcend the present technological horizon must begin with a reformation of human identity. But this project, at once philosophical and political, must proceed in a way that avoids return to one, the humanist conception of the subject as a unified and rational ego, a pre-given essence positioned outside of determining social and historical forces, the epistemological basis for domination of the social and natural world. Two, the romantic conception of an authentic natural subjectivity defines an opposition to technology, uh, a reactionary naivete, which fails to grasp the emancipatory aspects of technology, while also avoiding three, the post-structuralist celebration of a schizophrenically decentered self, which perfectly coheres with the ideology and fashion of fashion in late capitalism. Okay. <laughs> and you thought RoboCop was just about a robot who goes around shooting criminals. <laughs> and that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. If you'd like to share your thoughts about any of the topics we discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. Just go to Tor.com and click on Podcast, and then Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, Episode 18, and post a comment there. And be sure to join us next week when we'll interview Robin Wasserman, author of the young adult science fiction novel Skinned, about a popular high school girl who dies in a car accident and has her mind transferred to a strange robot body. See you then. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Tor.com. For this episode's show notes, or to subscribe to this podcast, visit Tor.com and click on Podcasts. 
For more information about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarrcurrently.com. Music and voiceover produced by Deadspill 9 Entertainment. If you've enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.